Your Bible should be now at the book of Job, chapter number 1. We're not going to read over the entire length of the story. Maybe you're new to church, maybe you've not spent much time in church, so you're not completely familiar with the story of Job. And I'll try to do my best in, in brief summary, at least to overview the story. And we're really only going to focus on about four verses in the book of Psalms in two different chapters. You can tell on the screens this month is our month of gratitude. It's appropriate because it's Thanksgiving. You see, we ought to be worthy of Him and our gratitude. Our yearly theme is worthy of our Lord. And that's a high, high bar that is set for us to live a life that is worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. But specifically in our gratitude... What are you grateful for this morning? We have a lot to be grateful for, don't we? I'll tell you what, I was moved to tears as the Rochester sang that song and it said, If I started now to the end of my life, I, could, I would run out of time before I could thank the Lord for all that He's done. But if I could only thank Him for one, it would have to be His Son. Well, that's good stuff. I like that. What a tremendous song. But we have a lot to be grateful for. But I believe that if you are grateful for the things, your ability to change when the things leave can change your attitude towards your God. If you're grateful for the things that are given as opposed to the giver of the things, your gratitude is always changing based upon your estimation of the things that you have. So this morning I want to take a look at three attitudes that will always lead to ingratitude in the Christian life. Job chapter number 1, verse number 20, the Bible says, Then Job arose and rent his mantle, and shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground and worshipped, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Now take your Bible to Job chapter number 2, verse number 9. The Bible says, Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did, did not Job sin with his lips. Let's pray. Father, please bless in the brief moments that we have today. Thank you for the tremendous songs that we've heard. Uh, but Lord, today may we focus in on what the Word of God has for our lives. Lord, please, please move in my heart and direct me that I might appropriately say what needs to be said, I ask. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Now, so far, if you do know the story, you know that Job has lost a lot. Job, the Bible tells us in chapter number one, was the wealthiest man in the East. Now, we don't know what the East completely contains, but we know he was the wealthiest man there. Job, the Bible tells us in chapter 1, has 7,000 sheep. The Bible tells us in Job chapter 1, he has 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, numerous servants, seven sons, and three daughters. And in the span of just moments, 
Job loses it all. In fact, the Bible kind of gives us how quick this moment is as it paints the picture as Job just is about his daily business and one servant comes to Job and says, Job, you wouldn't believe it, but, but your, your, your sheep, a, a great fire from God fell down from heaven and devoured all of your sheep. Now, maybe that's uh, lightning. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I'll tell you this. The servant found it very easy to blame God for it, didn't he? But the, the servant comes to Job. Job, all of your sheep are lost. Another servant comes to Job. Job, uh, uh, all, all the oxen were plowing and, and all the camels and, and, and all, all the uh, uh, donkeys were there. And, and uh, two different groups of people came and stole them. And, and now they slew all your servants and I'm the only one left to escape. And this happens moment after moment after moment as if the last servant interrupts the first servant. It's really one of the saddest stories in all the Bible as Job has to endure what very few people have ever had to endure. He loses essentially all. And yet in it all, he never became ungrateful. Now, I don't want to go through what Job went through. I I don't want to face the struggle that he must have surely faced. But I think I would do well to learn from this man and the incredible faith and gratitude that he had towards his God. I saw that we have just two Sundays before Thanksgiving. We're almost there. And... uh, Thanksgiving is obviously a recollection of the pilgrims landing and having a a feast with the Native Americans. And it's a pretty unique story. But as I did research, I found out that it's not a a happy story, really. You see, a hundred passengers approximately were on the Mayflower. They landed in New England in mid-December. Now, I've never been to New England but I watch occasional football games in New England in mid-December, and they look awful. I have no desire to go. And, and these people actually struggled to live. In fact, the first three months, they, they uh, went from the ship to land, building the places that they would live. And history tells us that over half of the pilgrims that landed from the Mayflower actually died within the first year. I read a quote that kind of shocked me. Someone said the pilgrims made seven times more graves than huts. Nevertheless, they set aside a day of thanksgiving. You see, it's so easy to thank God when life is going well. Boy, I tell you what. And and, uh, honestly, we we love to let people know how thankful we are during those times, do we not? We say, oh, God's being good right now. I've just got a promotion. I woke up this morning and the dog was wagging his tail instead of licking my face. I mean, life is good. I got down to the breakfast table and my wife had bacon cooking and gravy and biscuits. And I tell you what, she ain't done that for me in a long time. And and just today it was wonderful. I just want to thank God for the beautiful wife that uh, he gave me. I got into work. There was the coffee machine. Nobody was there. I got straight to the coffee. Man, I tell you what, God was good today. I got a parking spot right up front. Had a good day, went to lunch, met some good people. I actually got to leave a track on the table because I tell you what, I'm just so thankful for what God's done in my life. But on the day that doesn't go so well, 
You know the day when the dog jumps in the bed and decides to use that as his restroom area? You know the day when you're on your way to work and you're trying to create a good spirit before you get into work? I mean, you know you represent the Lord and you know you have a testimony to uphold and seven people cut you off and somehow find a way to blame you for it? You get into work and the boss calls you in and begins to chew you out for something that wasn't even your fault. It is at those times that in my life I have found it is much more difficult to be thankful. But if we're thankful for the things, or we're thankful for the circumstances, we will find ourselves more often than not being discontent. So this morning, let's take a look from Job and learn three attitudes that always lead to an ungrateful spirit. Number one, a devotion that expects supply. You see, Job lost all this in chapter one. He loses all his uh, sheep. He loses all of his donkeys. He loses all of his oxen. He loses all of his camels. He loses multiple serpents. He, uh, serpents, servants. Uh, I mean, that would actually be a blessing to some degree. But he loses multiple servants. He loses his seven sons and three daughters. And now we find in verse number 20, what's Job's reaction to losing it all? Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and complained. And fell down upon the ground and asked why. Of all the things that you and I would do well to take from Job's life, it is this. That his worship did not hinge upon God's ability to provide things. A devotion that is only a devotion that expects supply is no devotion at all. Oh, so many people do follow God for the things that God has to provide. But the reason that a true Christian ought to follow God is because He is God and He is good. And God is still good no matter where we find ourselves in life, whether the promotion is on our way or whether it was handed to someone else. God is still God and he still deserves our worship. Webster's 1828 dictionary defines worship as this. It is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. And yet Job loses it all and we find him now and, and i got to be honest, I don't know if this would be my reaction. Because we find Job, instead of going to counselors, instead of going to friends and asking for help, instead of going to all the different places that we find it so easy to go, he goes to the ground to display his extravagant love and extreme submission to God. At the end of the day, the Bible is very clear. God is able to take care of your needs. The Bible says, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory. In fact, the Lord says this, 
For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. The psalmist David said, I have been young and I am older now and I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging for bread. David in the span of his life realized that the longer he knew God, the more faithful he found God. He never found God failing his followers. This is a biblical principle that God can supply your need. God is not limited in his resources. His ear is not heavy that it cannot hear, nor is his hand shortened that it cannot save. God can take care of your problems. But what if he chooses not to? There's a story in the Bible where Jesus feeds 5,000 and... And they're amazed. They hear about him because of the miracles he's doing. And, and he takes these loaves and fishes and blesses them. And, and now everybody has food to eat. The Bible tells us that that night Jesus gets on a ship. Well, actually his disciples gets on a ship. Uh, he doesn't really need one. <laughs> it's a pretty cool story actually. He goes over and now his disciples and him are on the other side of the sea. And the group the multitude, if you will, stayed back, still enjoying the bread and the fishes. But when the sun comes up, they realize Jesus isn't there and his disciples are not there. And so what do the multitude do? Well, they get in their own boats and they go across the sea and they find Jesus. And they begin to ask him for help. They say, Lord, we've got some problems. We, we, we want to see some more miracles. You know what Jesus says to them? You're not following me for the miracles. You only follow me for the bread. The lesson in these people's life is the only reason that they followed our Savior was not because of what he could do for them, but what he could give them. Oh, in a world of Christianity that is so so fickle and so compromising. We find people only following God because they feel like he's a good person to have in their network. People using him as a, as a, 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 a supply chain, if you will. But a devotion, a true devotion that expects nothing from God is one like Job had. One that even in the darkest valley, in the deepest hole... Job found it appropriate to get on his face before God and say, God, you are still my God. Psalm 99 verse 9 says this, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill. For the Lord our God is holy. You know the number one reason we ought to worship God? Because he is God. That's it. Because he is God and we are his creation. Because we were created to worship our God. We were given the privilege to go to him and tell him how great he is. A devotion that expects supply will certainly lead to a spirit of ingratitude. Number two, we must hurry. A disapproval that is easily spoken we'll find that we will grow discontent with God when a disapproval that is easily spoken is an attitude that we have. Notice in verse number 22. This is remarkable. The Bible says, even though he's lost all these things and, and, and his wealth is gone, 
verse number 22. In all of this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. You know, anytime we accuse God as being anything less than good, it's foolish. And that's what the Bible's saying. In all of this, in all the circumstances that Job could see, he didn't go out of his way to look at God and say, God, this is your fault. You know, his children died because of a natural disaster. His sheep were killed because of fire fallen from God, as his servant put it. Do you know how easy it would have been for Job to blame God? Well, I'll tell you this, how easy is it for natural disasters to happen in our world and people in our world blame God and say, how could God do that? It's easy for them to say that, well, it would have been just as easy for Job to blame it. His servant even helped him do it. And yet Job never did. And Job never spoke an ill word towards or about his God. The book of James tells us that we need to watch our mouth. We need to be careful of the words that we say. My dad has a saying, be careful of the words that you say, keep them soft and sweet, because you never know from day to day which ones you'll have to eat. We've got to be careful about the words that we say, and Job could have said a lot of foolish things in his problem, but he didn't. He withheld his tongue, the Bible says in James chapter 3. Even so, the tongue is just a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, what a great matter a little fire kindleth. Oh, it just takes one spark to start a great forest fire. And James says, our tongue is the blaze, is a blaze awaiting to happen. James chapter 3 verse 9 speaks of people who were willing to bless God with one side of their mouth, and out of the other side of their mouth were able to curse God. And he said, brethren, these things ought not be. We've got to watch our mouth. And we've we got to be careful in our hard times that we do not express our dissatisfaction with the way God is handling us. You know why? Because if you study the Bible, you'll find out that a tongue problem is actually a heart problem. The Bible says, for a good man bringeth forth good treasure out of his heart, just like an evil man bringeth forth evil treasure out of his heart. And then it says in Luke chapter 6, for of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. It's almost as if you can input and input and input so much into your heart until eventually it overflows. In your trial, in your sad day, we must be careful that our thoughts remain strong and positive towards our God. Because, man, it's so easy to let this mountain of negativity overwhelm you, is it not? Oh, man, I just lost my kids. Oh, man, I just lost all my wealth. I don't know what I'm going to do. I just lost everything. I have no hope. And then it begins to bubble over and spew out on everyone else. And Job withheld his tongue. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 4 that we are to keep our heart with all diligence. Why? For out of it flow the issues of life. What you put into your heart flows out, whether that's negativity or positivity. And I've seen people go through some of the greatest trials only to be thankful that they're going through them. I heard this week of a pastor whose son was just 
was just diagnosed with muscular dystrophy. I have to be honest, I didn't know what that was. I've heard of the term, I had no idea. Until my friend began to explain to me, well, you know the muscle, the heart is a muscle. And eventually his, his body will shrivel to the point where his muscles won't work. But since the heart is a muscle, it will begin to fail. And that pastor is going to have to watch his five-year-old child wither like a flower and die. And I said, how's he doing? I said, man, he's doing as well as you can do in a situation like that. He's still preaching. How can someone go through that and not begin to open their mouth and just, just a little bit say, God, what are you doing here? I've tried serving you. I've tried doing everything I can for you. God, what are you doing in my life? And it's so easy when this mountain begins to roll up on top of us, we begin to say things that we would regret in any other situation. In all of this, Job charged not God foolishly. We have to make sure that we do not have a devotion that expects supply. We have to make sure that we do not have a disapproval that is easily spoken. And we must make sure that we do not have a disdain that entertains sharing. If you'll go to chapter number 2, verse number 9. What happens is, and this is wonderful because it just shows how much more powerful our God is than the devil. But in chapter 1, the devil presents himself before God and lays down this gauntlet and says, Oh, I'll get Job to, I'll get Job to say bad things about you. I'll get Job to question you. I'll get, I'll get Job to look at you and say, You're not good. And God says, Okay, you can do it. And that's when all the trials that Satan throws in his path occur. That's where he loses his sheep, his camel, his oxen, all of his donkeys. He loses his servants and he loses his children. Chapter number 2, the devil has to appear before God again like a whipped pup. And I love that. That just makes me happy. You know, I don't really know if the devil has a tail. You know, I, I know the cartoon's pointing that way, but uh, painting that way. But if he does, it was between his legs at chapter number 2. Because he comes back to God. And God says, so how'd Job do? And Satan looks at him and says, well... He didn't, he didn't give in. But if you'll let me touch him, I promise you, if you'll let me begin to affect him, his person, his body, if you'll let me do that, no doubt, he'll, he'll cave. God says, okay. In chapter number two, the devil only smites Job with one malady, and it is this, boils. And I don't think if the devil's going to go as far as being in this, if you will, arm wrestling, test, uh, arm wrestling contest with God, I don't think the devil's going to give a small case of boils. I think Job's covered from head to toe in boils. I think they're the most painful. I think they're the most uh, disgusting. I think they're the most uncomfortable boils that has ever been given on this earth. Because remember, this is Satan comparing himself and challenging God. So if Satan has all the ability in the world to do whatever he wants, he's going to go all out, isn't he? I mean, isn't that what you do with your wife when you Google something? No, I tell you, I'm right. No, you, I'm right. No, I'm right. If you're, you're going to go all out. You're going to go edit the Wikipedia page so you are right. 
And here Job is, and he is literally scraping the boils, the Bible tells us. And in verse number 9, Job's wife has had it. Verse number 9, the Bible says, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Now, I think sometimes we lump Job's wife in with Lot's wife. We put them in the same category. But I'll tell you, if you think about it, they are not in the same category at all. Lot's wife was commanded directly by God not to look back at the city. I'm going to destroy the city. And if you'll remember, the story is such that God is extending a tremendous amount of mercy to Lot and his family. So much so that the angels are are painstakingly grabbing his arm, leading him out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And here's, here's Lot's wife following him. And I don't know why she looked back. You could just guess as good as I could, but maybe it was she had friends and acquaintances she has made and she was sad to see the city go. I don't know. Maybe it hurt her that the city that her home was in was destroyed. And God says, we're going to leave, but I don't want you to look back. What does she do? She looks back. You know what that is? That is direct disobedience to God despite his many mercies he's extending. Now let's take a look at what Job's wife has gone through. Remember, she went through chapter 1 just like Job. She watched everything her husband had ever worked for go out like that. All of her wealth, and, and ladies, maybe you would agree with me, All of her security, gone. There is no one coming to their rescue. They have no livestock. They have no wealth. And what's worse is her children are gone. Now, I personally believe this. The loss of a child affects a father unbelievably. But in comparison, it will never equate to what a mother goes through. Oh man, those children are that mother. They are her future. You, you, you imagine she's thinking about birthday parties and, and grandbabies and, and the future. I mean, this is her life. And in one message, a servant says, they're gone. And the Bible tells us that in all this, Job did not curse God foolishly. Well, so far, neither has she, as far as we know. Now chapter 2 comes, and we find her husband, the man of her dreams, the only person she has left in this world, sitting on the floor, scraping himself, from the immense amount of pain that he is in, because that is the only relief he can find. Boy, she made it through chapter one. Let me ask you a question. Could you? Could you have made it through chapter one? Because to be honest, I don't stand before you today as a giant in the faith. I'm not sure I could. 
Losing everything, losing my children, losing it all. I would love to stand up here and say, no doubt about it, I'd serve God through it all. I would love to tell you that. But boy, I tell you, when rubber meets the road, I don't know. And she did. We criticize her. We look at her and say, what were you thinking? But I tell you what, I'm not sure I could have made it. And now in chapter 2, she finds... Everything in her world gone, her husband suffering from, from, from this terrible disease that, may I remind you, was given by Satan, who is the prince and power of the air. There is no limitations to his power in this realm, and God has given him full permission to do whatever he wants. This was terrible circumstances. And now, and only now, she looks at Job. And she says, dost thou still retain that integrity? Let me interpret for you the way I read that. How are you still doing it? How are you still acting as if it's all okay, Job? Do you not realize everything is gone? How are you still acting like your God is still good? I mean, I remember Job, he's given us all that we have, but, but this is getting out of hand. Job, just look at God and say it's enough. Just look at God and question him one time. Just, Job, just do it. And Job wouldn't. And in fact, he corrects his wife and says this, you speak foolishly. He says, you don't even know. Everything that we have been given is given from God. How can we receive all the many blessings from God and not expect a couple rainy days? We criticize her a lot. I'm not sure she deserves it. But even though she may not deserve our criticism, I'll tell you what, who does deserve our commendation? And that is Job. He went through chapter 1 and chapter 2 and even still with, remind you, if, if we find Job's three friends show up here in a little bit, if you read the book of Job, you'll find they're not very good friends. Job's wife is the only person that he has left in the world and now she's turned on God and Job still retains his integrity. In the middle of your darkest day, you must be very careful with the people that you surround yourself with. Because what people like to do is they like to give advice completely apart from God's word. And usually the advice starts like this. Well, Brother Ben, I, I know what you're going through. I've been there. And they'll use experience to dictate to you what you should do. You know the problem with experience? It is all subjective. Well, this is how I made it through. And that's what, and that's what Job's wife's doing here. What are you doing, Job? Just give up. Just, just, just give in. And Job says, never. Because I may lose things and I may lose all my wealth. I may lose all my family. But at the end of the day, I could never question God's goodness because of all the things that he's done for me. 
He is still God and He is still good. Be careful with the negativity that you listen to from other people. If anybody ever begins to question God in your presence, you just shut that down quick. Because when you start hearing those things, they begin to affect you. And you may not like to admit it, but, but if you hear enough, you'll start to believe it. You'll start to question, that's not normally there. I tripped over your speaker, Brother Ben. That's who we throwing off my feng shui up here, buddy. Oh, man. I almost pulled a preacher and fell right on my face off the platform. Good gracious. We must be careful who we listen to when we are in this situation. And we must allow God's word to be the foundation of our recovery. You know why? Because God's word is unchanging. God's word is, is comforting. God's word can help you. It can instruct you. And, and what we do is we go to our friends and we say, well, what, what, what would you do in this situation? I tell you what, our friends may not always be right, but God's word is always right. The Bible says in Psalm 84, verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. And no good thing will he withhold from them that love him. You go through a trial and you go through a struggle. There is nothing more comforting than Psalm 84, 11, telling you God's got your back no matter what comes down the pike. Yesterday, I was watching a show called The War Fighters. I enjoy watching military uh, shows and, and movies, you know, like Rambo, those types of movies. Obviously, the, the PG version, it's hard to get, but I've got one. I enjoy, though, seriously watching our armed forces serve. They are beyond brave. And, and if you watch these documentaries like I do, and I watch a lot of them because I truly do love it. If you watch them, you'll find one thing. Usually the guy that serves was the best at everything in his high school. I can't tell you how many times last night this documentary was specifically about the Army Rangers. I can't tell you how many times they said, yeah, everybody liked him. He, he was the football star. He was the athlete. I heard of one guy last night never training for a triathlon in his life and only having like a Walmart mountain bike. He just took it to a triathlon and won it. That's our, that's our guys. They're the best. And yesterday as I was watching this documentary, the, the, the documentary was specifically talking about uh, enemy engagements that, that didn't go according to plan in many cases. And every single one of them they lost. A brother. And I tell you, to see these men who are so courageous, to see these men who are so well trained, I mean, they are machines, to see them begin to cry when they speak of the loss of their friend and their colleague and their brother, one of the hardest things you could ever watch in your life. They sit there and they begin to question their actions and they question whether they could have done something to help or save their brother. And at the whole time you're thinking, man, that's not your fault. You did everything you could. You, you fought, you served. And I began to ask myself, 
why do these guys put themselves through this? It's just a lot. I mean, I know you love your country, but you are literally willing to, to lose your life and affect your family's life for the rest of their life. Also, I can be free? One of the army rangers was asked a question similar to this about why he joined up. And he says, I grew up in a small town of Texas. I had a drug problem. He said, I was drugged to church Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night. Saturday sometimes too. He said, just a small town Texas life. He went on to say this. I read in my Bible one time. No greater love hath any man than this, than that a man would lay down his life for his friend. And he said, to me, that was a call to arms. That man was willing to love this country and love us as a people so much. He was willing to give his life. And today after service, we're going to honor our veterans. We're going to thank them. We're going to give them a small gift. But I'll tell you what. It will not do justice to the gratitude we owe you. Not even close. The rest of your life, you may not serve this country one moment, but you have done more for us already than we could ever show you enough appreciation for. I thank you from the depths of my heart. If you served in any way. Listen to me. That verse in John 15 is Jesus saying those words. And you know what he says? He says, I will eventually display the greatest love that this world has ever seen when I lay down my life for you. If Jesus never does another thing for you, he would be the best friend you've ever had. If God is the gift giver of all, never gave you another gift, he would still be the best gift giver you've ever seen. He gave us his son. We ought not find gratitude in the things that we have for the Bible says, what type of life is one lived for resources? A man's life consists not of the things that he has. If, if, If you think that your life is defined as a success, if you have a big bottom line or your checking account is full, I pity you because you speak as one of the foolish people. But this morning, If your life is lived in every action in complete gratitude, not because of what God is doing and not because of what God can do for you, but what God already has done in sending his son for your salvation, you'll find tremendous gratitude. And this gratitude will not be always in flux always changing based upon whether I get the promotion, always changing based upon whether the wife has got breakfast cooked. If you find your gratitude in the one greatest act of service that's ever occurred on this earth, you'll find you will always be grateful. 